Welcome to The Vast Majority. I'm Jacobin Managing Editor Micah Utrecht. We seemed terrifyingly close to an open war on Iran recently after the Trump administration's drone assassination of Iranian General Qasem Soleimani. It seems like we've avoided the worst-case scenario, at least for now, but the assassination really highlighted just how brazenly American imperial power is wielded around the world and how easy it could be for the American imperial presidency, whoever is in that presidency, to drag us back into another major war. It also is a reminder that we don't have a real anti-war movement in this country that can effectively fight back against these kinds of escalations. I talked about all of these issues with Daniel Bessner. Daniel is a historian and professor of international studies at the University of Washington, as well as the author of Democracy in Exile and a forthcoming history of the Rand Corporation. He's also a regular contributor to Jacobin. Here's Daniel. Danny, hello. Hello. Thanks for coming on the show. So we are recording this on Wednesday, the day after the Democratic debate, and we were expecting a substantive discussion, or at least a discussion. I don't know if we were expecting it to be substantive. But we are just expecting a discussion on foreign policy uh, to come out in this debate, uh, given that we almost just had a major escalation war with Iran. Uh, and we got a discussion on foreign policy last night, but it was kind of funny because everyone came off as being this sort of staunch anti-war activist as if they have, you know, been on the front lines of uh, protesting U.S. imperial intervention their entire lives. Uh, it was, it was, uh, if you, if you didn't have any, you know, background knowledge of what the, each individual candidate's actual history was on this, you might think they were all pretty similar. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it shows pretty, uh, something pretty interesting and also in some senses a, a continuity. Because if you remember in 2008, Obama very much ran as an anti-war candidate. I think the, the language at the time was something on, uh, along the lines of he's against dumb wars and, and for sort of a smart wars. And of course, an anti-imperialist would ask uh, what, what smart wars exactly was he referring to? Uh, Vietnam, uh, the overthrow uh, of Mossadegh in Iran or Benz in Guatemala or whatever, whatever may have you. So this has been sort of a, a long-standing, at least the last 10, 15 years, post-Iraq sort of stance of the Democratic Party. But of course, when Obama was actually in office and he was actually the executive and able to affect things, he very much, you know, bought in. I mean, he did he did govern differently than Bush in the sense that he didn't really invade any countries, although he did intervene in, in Libya and totally destroy that country, which is still in the midst of a brutal civil war. Um, but, you know, he 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 despite those differences and some sense similarities, he basically maintained American military hegemony in a very similar way. And that's my sense is that, I mean, all the candidates except for Bernie, um, my sense wouldn't make foreign policy central to their platform if a Biden or a Warren or a Buttigieg was elected. I think they'd very much continue to maintain the imperial apparatus. And just to be clear about what, what I mean by that, you know, the roughly 800 military bases the United States has around the world, the fact that the most recent figures have demonstrated that the United States deployed special operations forces in 2017 in 149 countries, which is actually about 70% of the world's countries. The fact that the U.S. military spends more than the next uh, six or seven countries combined on its, on its military. So I think most of the candidates in the Democratic primary would uh, continue to do that, even though I, I think that Bernie, in, in fact, 
um, wouldn't. So I just just to underline that there should be a general skepticism toward the the whole posturing as anti-war uh, candidacies uh, candidates that uh, took place last night. Right, and we've talked about this at length on this show in the past. But the thing that was most striking to me about last night was Joe Biden continuing to try to rewrite the record as if he did not play this really key role within the Democratic Party of selling the Iraq war to the Democrats. There's plenty of clips out there of him denouncing Democrats who are opposed to the war. And uh, he's for for good reason, obviously, he's uh, trying to run from that record. But I guess the thing that disturbed me watching last night was that he seemed to be getting away with it. I mean, if you didn't know the substance of his record, you, you might not come away from that debate thinking that he played that key role in selling Iraq to us. Yeah, I mean, it's total it's total gaslighting, 100 percent. It just shows the fact that the, that the media is really pathetic about a lot of these issues. I mean, they're, they themselves are complicit in the entire imperial project, particularly after the end of the Cold War. Um, and I think with with a, a lot of that that stuff, you really see how, how how Biden is very much a product of the Cold War. You know, like if you go back to his record, very much of the sort of liberal Wilsonian idea dating back to World War One, that the United States has not only the ability, but the right and duty to remake the world. And I think that's fundamentally what Biden thinks. You know, he's born in 1942. He comes to intellectual maturity during the height of America's military power during the Cold War. And, of course, the triumphalism of the post-Cold War period. And there's no nothing that suggests that he would govern any differently in office. And, it, and it's just, you know, this is why I think a tweet was going around last night. It might have been you who even tweeted it, that Jacobin should host the next primary. I mean, it, it, frankly, it frankly doesn't even seem like these moderators know very much. And there's a whole question about whether you know these types of journalists, these types of TV journalists, are really the best people to to even organize these things, because theoretically debates should be you know a crucial aspect of the election of democracy generally. But there seems to be just this total total ignorance about the candidates and this total buying into basically the American imperial and financial capitalist project that that's really really problematic. And uh, I think that hopefully people are are beginning to wake up to it. And I think the fact that the uh, you know the thing that that happened with Bernie Sanders where they asked Bernie if he ever said the um, anti woman comment to Warren he said no and then they asked her uh, how'd she respond to this anti woman comment I think that actually backfired uh, on both CNN and, and Warren because I I think that people are beginning to recognize that it's a, a total you know shit show and totally made up so you know that's actually a positive development that we should take account of. It was me who suggested that Jacobin host the next Democratic debate, and I think I'm going to take a, a page from the CNN playbook when uh, when I do get to be one of the the moderators of the debate, and I'll ask Biden some question that's like, uh, you know, Mr. Biden, when when you fall asleep at night, how many of the hundreds of thousands of Iraqis haunt your dreams uh, as you are drifting into sleep? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how many how many ghosts are, are really out out at the haunt you when you when you when you constantly slip and fall on a banana peel on stage? How does that affect your ability to be president, uh, Mr. Biden? <laughs> what is my name, <laughs> Mr. Biden? <laughs> so uh, as I mentioned, uh, we recently came terrifyingly close uh, to war in, on Iran. Um, there there was a uh, Dave Weigel, a reporter for the Washington Post, said that he talked to a, a Democrat uh, House member who said something like, uh, thankfully, in order to go to war, you need uh, two insane parties. And uh, we've only got one in this 
scenario it's trump and the, the uh, leadership of iran actually seems like to, to be acting like rationally rational actors in this situation um what you know what what do we what do we take from this uh i mean beyond the obvious like terror at at, at the prospect of us being dragged in, into another war a, a prospect which is not fully off the table obviously um but yeah what were you thinking throughout that whole process my major takeaways were two things uh, about this and that I want to underline. Uh, the first thing is that I, I think it demonstrates, uh, as many things have demonstrated over the last, you know, 30, some might even say 75 years, is that the United States is able to act in the world without consequences in the sense that this is not to say that a, a lot of Americans, particularly those who who serve in the military, don't suffer from American imperial hubris abroad. But as a whole, the majority of Americans do not suffer when the United States does I mean, just frankly, wild shit that no one would rationally do. Uh, and to me, this highlights really how powerful the United States is, at least in terms of its military power. Um, you know, all the stats I mentioned before really indicate that. So I, I think it's important to recognize uh, a couple things at once. Uh, and that is that the United States is what I might call its cultural power in the world is certainly in decline, particularly since Trump, um, what Joe Nye, sort of a liberal commentator called uh, soft power is certainly in decline. Uh, it's military power or, or, you know, to use a Marxist sense, it's material power remains very much not in decline. And the United States is able to do things like assassinate an Iranian, uh, you know, general with very little consequence on the home front. And that this indicates that, you know, this can continue very, very much into the future. I think U.S. military power, um, unless unless it's challenged from the left in, in very particular ways, you know, if Bernie is elected, unless he does very particular things, will remain pretty much unchallengeable and unquestioned. Um, and then the second thing that it highlights to me, and I think it's really important, is the, the problem of concentrating foreign policymaking power in the executive branch and particularly around the presidency. So when I, what I say that is that, you know, in the executive branch, you have the State Department uh, and the Defense Department and the White House itself. Um, I think you see a trend in the last, you know, 50 or 60 years in American history for uh, decision making power to be concentrated in, in, in the White House itself and particularly around the president himself. And I think that's really problematic. Um, and I think that sort of any anti-imperial reform is going to have to wrestle with the very structure of uh, executive decision making in the United States. Uh, how do we transform things like the NSC or the DOD or the State Department or the CIA? Uh, or really, I mean, with the CIA and a lot of those, actually, how do we abolish them? A call that Bernie made in 1974, if you remember. It's unfortunately not on his agenda this time around, but he, he did call at one point in his life that it abolished the CIA, which I thought was funny because a former CIA spokesperson endorsed Elizabeth Warren yesterday. And the contrast between that and then Bernie, who in 1974 said we have to abolish it because I forget the exact quote, but it was something along the lines of uh, it is it's a totally unaccountable uh, institution that's used by right wing psychos to, to prop up uh, fascist dictatorships, which where's the lie? <laughs> right, right, right. Spot the lie there. And so the question is, like, what is the left's institutional project? I mean, just to bring it to, you know, to, to, to really underline that, given this reality of executive power, what is the left's institutional solution to that? You know, I think that 
Um, we need the mass movements that we've had in Vietnam, anti-Vietnam, in Iraq. But those mass movements, I think, have demonstrated that those don't end wars. So the question is, how do we sort of like develop a structural solution to the, to the problem of executive decision making, which the Iranian situation really highlighted to me. Right. So we'll talk about that in a second about the institutional solutions to the problem of American imperial power. But you mentioned a minute ago uh, that the U.S. acts globally, you know, flexes its imperial muscle with no consequences. And I think that's important to highlight on this Iran situation because we're all breathing a sigh of relief that we're not entering into, you know, major escalations with uh, with Iran right now. But we, Trump assassinated a, a Iranian general and we're just going to, you know, th- thankfully Iran doesn't want to escalate things, but like Trump's just going to be able to do that. We're just going to be able to assassinate this guy and we're all going to move on. I mean, it sort of underscores the total lack of consequences for any kind of U.S. imperial intervention. And what is the lesson that Trump is going to walk away from this incident with? It's that he can get away with uh, assassinating somebody like Soleimani without any consequence. No, absolutely. And and, and I think that one of the, the major reasons for the whole thing was to back up Saudi power in this sort of Saudi-Iranian struggle in the Middle East. So I think he's going to demonstrate like that the United States is able is going to be able to do that without really suffering consequences. Um, so I think this is the, the general lesson to me of, of the American imperial hubris in the last 30 years. And I think it's a tragic and disgusting lesson, but I think it's something that we have to confront head on, particularly if you want to build a mass movement that's really anti-war and anti-imperialist um, by, by making very clear connections about how these moves are actually, you know, not only morally bad, but sort of bad for the working class's interest in the world. And they actually work against the transnational types of solidarity that we want to be thinking about building uh, in the future. So you've written about Bernie Sanders and foreign policy in the past. You mentioned him today. Um, what's still sort of hard for me to wrap my head around is how my entire life, most of American history at this point, uh, leftists have been looking at major presidential candidates and trying to figure out who's the least worst of them. And Bernie Sanders is active, actually good <laughs> on most right. on most questions. Uh, foreign policy, I don't I don't think he's he's perfect, but he is actively good. He seems to have a, a, a anti imperialist uh, you know uh, ethos guiding his his decisions, whether or not he always. Uh, follows through on them uh, is another question but on the whole uh, he's he clearly has a critique of american imperial power around the world what would that look like in a bernie sanders presidency because there's there's so many i mean it's one thing to you know to to be able to overcome all of the barriers to achieving something like medicare for all that will be a tall enough order on its own abolishing all student debt all the, the domestic elements of his agenda that he says he wants to uh, to to make happen but on foreign policy it seems like such an incredibly tall order especially given that there is n- that not a, a kind of institutional apparatus that you, you mentioned you know that the, when the right or when an obama or hillary clinton takes power there are plenty of people who are ready to staff their foreign policy uh staffing positions uh, and they're not going to to buck the imperialist uh, status quo but if bernie's going to do that he's he's going to be up against quite a bit and he is going to be very hard for him to find people to staff the positions through which he can carry out that anti-imperialist agenda yeah i mean i think there's there's a, a number of really significant obstacles i mean first he's going to have to 
use an enormous amount of political capital to take on the military, to take on the military leadership that has a particular view of what America's role in the world should be. Second, he's going to have to take on the defense contractors, Lockheed Martin, Boeing, Raytheon, uh, et cetera, who actually build and make an enormous amount of money from America's, America's imperial presence in the world. And then he's going to have to take on sort of, or at least not take on, but transform an American public, which also, you know, a lot of people, not everyone, but particularly people above a certain age, have, a, uh, have, have the idea that the United States needs to, you know, commit itself to, quote unquote, uh, global leadership is the term that you hear, what you and I would refer to as uh, imperialism. So I think there's going to be a lot of obstacles there. And then you have this added to the fact that there's not basically a cadre of people able to staff the administrations in the literal state, in the DOD, in the State Department, on the NSC, um, et cetera, who, who are committed to an anti-imperialist program, right? So are you going to get a lot of um, Obama administration veterans? Are you going to get a lot of you know veterans from the Hillary Clinton campaign? And the bureaucracy is very important in terms of foreign policymaking. I don't think Bernie will commit the United States to new wars, but is Bernie going to have the political capital to begin drawing down America's base presence, right? Like that's a very difficult thing that involves negotiating with a lot of different people, at a lot of different times. In, in addition to the executive structural reforms that I was talking about earlier, you know, reforming the State Department, you know, real seriously reforming the Department of Defense and the National Security Council and hopefully abolishing the CIA, um, it, it'll have to be like a very strategic project about how exactly we go about really transforming America's global presence. And I think that has to be done, not just from the executive, um, but also from uh, democratic structures, right? And so you're, you're confronted with a paradox is that Bernie... I think is going to have to use the sheer power of the executive um, to basically reduce the power of the executive, right? And increase congressional power. And what do you do in, you know, if a Senate's still dominated by Republicans and things along those lines? It's a very difficult strategic task. So I think, you know, I wouldn't get our hopes up. I think it's only going to be the beginning of a long process. So you've written in the past about democratizing foreign policy, and that seems like an essential piece to what you're discussing here. I mean, Americans don't seem to think a whole lot about foreign policy. Bernie's last campaign was not about foreign policy at all. He's he's uh, upped the, his, the amount that he's talking about foreign policy this time around. Um, but what, what do you mean by that term, democratized foreign policy, and why is it so important and what would it look like? Um, that's a great question. So for me, at, at this stage of thinking about it, right now it's mostly a question of values, right? So what do I mean by democratizing foreign policy is that U.S. citizens should have more of a direct say in the foreign policy decisions that the United States make, not only in terms of increasing power, uh, the powers of Congress, which I do think is crucial, but also in terms of some mechanism that actively connects ordinary people to the foreign policy making process. I think something like that needs to be developed. But beyond U.S. citizens, I think we need to take uh, account of two other constituencies. First, it's undocumented people in the United States, you know, refugees, asylum seekers, uh, undocumented immigrants who also need to have some sort of say in America's foreign policy and basically policy uh, making decisions uh, generally and sort of centering them and centering their experiences as well. And then perhaps most importantly, we also need to figure out how to center the people who are actually affected by the American Imperium, right? The United States has all these global bases, does so much around the world, and there are people, whether they're in Iraq or Somalia or um, or Indonesia or, or wherever it may be, who are affected directly by the United States' decisions. So the question is, and it's I don't think it's an easy question to answer, is how do we incorporate their views 
into the actual structure of the American Imperium. Uh, a term that I've used uh, or that I, I've heard before, I don't think, I definitely didn't come up with it. It's called, you know, no annihilation without representation, right? If the United States destroys your country, like it's destroyed Iraq, like it's destroyed Afghanistan, like arguably it's destroyed Libya, is there a way to meaningfully um, represent the interests of those peoples directly affected by American power in the foreign policy making process? So to me, um, I don't have like a bunch of, here's the five point Vox approved plan about how one does that. But I think these are the lines along which we should be thinking, right? How do you actually increase public in its broadest sense, public participation in the American foreign policy making process. And I think we need to develop new mechanisms, right? The foreign policy making apparatus that we have now was essentially created in the 1947 National Security Act. It's very old, right? We need to rethink given new technologies, given new capabilities about how to basically bring people in to the decision making process in a, in a more democratic and more realistic way. I mean, we know that, you know, Americans are tired of war. They seem exhausted by the Iraq war, which to me was what made the near miss with Iran so uh, baffling, was that it, I thought that there was no way that this would be a popular thing among the American population, particularly when Trump ran on not getting involved in foreign uh, entanglements like this. But um, given that there is so much distrust in American intervention, we have our own sort of like 21st century uh, Vietnam syndrome at this point. Um, and and these interventions are not popular. Is this a, a an opening for uh, people like Bernie or you know left activists or, or anybody to to make a kind of anti imperialist uh, foreign policy something that is is sort of legible to average Americans who who see the American foreign policy not as some you know something that they shouldn't be paying attention to, but is actually central to uh, to how they should think about politics and, and everything else? Yeah, I, th I think this is an opening, but I think we have to be really clever about it. Um, I think when, when one thinks of the socialist movement in a capacious way, I think education has to be a critical element of it. And so what does that education consist? I mean, it consists of basically like what one might consider DSA meetings and people already associated with the movement, but it also consists of, of, of getting our message out, out there. So how do we do that? We do do it through uh, spaces like Jacobin and other left-wing magazines, which have become increasingly uh, powerful as sort of an educational project. But I think we also need to do things like inform how American textbooks are written. Right. So there was that recent New York Times report that came out that showed the, the, the sort of differences between textbooks around the country. So what socialists should be doing should be reframing the American story in a way that emphasizes anti-imperialism and, and one might add um, anti-capitalism. So we should take this as a moment that not only to elect, you know, anti-imperialist leaders like Bernie Sanders, and I, I do believe he is actually an anti-imperialist leader and certainly the only one that that has existed in, in the cold um, since the Cold War, um, but also thinking in sort of a broader way about how do we change how people view their relationship to the United States, and in so doing, how people understand the United States' relationship to the rest of the world. And that's, you know, a very difficult pro uh, project with no easy answers, because you're essentially saying, how do you improve people, or basically ask people to feel empathy for other suffering people when they themselves are suffering, right? Which is a very difficult thing to do, but I, I, I think it needs to be central to the entire socialist project, um, is what I would say. And electing leaders is crucial, but it's not the only element of that. The way that Bernie has done it throughout his career has been the kind of, I guess you could call it like the MLK 
quote about you know the bombs that explode in Vietnam you know also explode on the streets of American ghettos like the the that when we are in these uh, these imperialist interventions that uh, you know all the resources that we put towards that means that uh, we're not able to have a social democratic state at home uh, you know both I think in terms of that that is where the actual resources go where the money goes towards those imperialist uh adventures but also because imperialism turns american society and american politics in a in a sort of reactionary direction generally and and uh it it, it pulls us into this kind of uh you know reactionary mindset where that's what we're focusing on is beating everybody's ass around the world rather than you know creating a society where uh, average people's needs are met. And so, I mean, I've, I've heard him give, you know, the clips of him giving speeches that are, you know, denouncing Star Wars, for example, during the uh, Reagan era, immediately after Reagan, uh, you know, saying he's not worried about, you know, uh, creating Star Wars or he's not worried about uh, these enemies that who that American hawks are trying to cook up. He's worried about Americans at home, you know, not being able to get jobs, not having uh, wages to survive on, et cetera, et cetera. And that's 100% right. And just to put an even fine point on it, think about, you know, the militarization of American policing that basically occurred during the Cold War. As Stuart Schrader, a scholar at Johns Hopkins, has written in his recent book, Badges Without Borders, and I think has shown demonstrably to, uh, that it's demonstrably correct, is that, you know, the militarization of American policing was directly caused by America's imperial interventions abroad, right? The fact that we have SWAT teams now and super armed police that, that, that kills so many uh, black and brown people in this country is a direct result of America's imperial interventions abroad. So I think that we also need to consider the fact that not only does it divert resources, which is 100%, but it actually turns our own society, uh, I mean, I don't like using this term, but I'll just use it in a colloquial sense, more fascist, right, where we now have uh, organizations like ICE, you know, ICE is a response to the war on terror. You know, and 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 uh, organizations like ICE or the the valorization of militarism uh, in in games like Call of Duty or flyovers at every NFL game. I mean, like this is a, a pretty disgusting thing, in my opinion, to valorize the killing of other people. That that is really a, something that human beings should a, a avoid at all costs. So it, it's it's not just that you know we're, we don't have socialized healthcare because we spend an enormous amount on the military, which is in some sense true, but it also that it that it sort of. Um, corrodes the, the 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 culture that we would want to be building at home you know a culture of empathy a culture of i mean not to be hippy dippy about it but of peace and love etc this is not possible in an imperial when you when you live in an imperialist country and that really that affects every american directly every single one even if they don't know anyone who served in the military so you mentioned the institutional apparatus for uh, both the imperial project and for uh, the lack of one for an anti-imperialist project um, you're involved in the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, which is a new think tank. Uh, there's a great uh, profile of it in uh, The Nation that David Cleon wrote that I can link to in the show notes. Uh, and it's a, an, it, it, what, what the Quincy Institute seems to be doing is similar to some of the new criminal justice efforts, for example, where it's a kind of, I don't want to say bipartisan consensus, but there are people from the right, you know, who, who you can find common cause with 
uh, to try to dismantle mass incarceration in America. And in the case of the Quincy Institute, uh, there are folks like the Koch brothers who uh, obviously come at politics from the hard right in a lot of ways, but don't want us to say that they don't want us to keep getting involved in uh, these uh, imperialist uh, interventions abroad, or at least inter- they wouldn't say imperialist, they would say interventions uh, abroad. Um, so can you just talk about Quincy and what it's up to and uh, what what maybe some of the challenges of, of that kind of project where the people are involved are coming from multiple angles politically, what, what those challenges are? Uh, sure, of course. Well, I think the, the major impetus behind Quincy is that um, American foreign policy... Um, Think tanks actually have a huge influence on American foreign policy for a variety of reasons. Um, I think people often talk about the military-industrial complex. The way that I frame it is the military-industrial complex you know, builds the weapons, and the military-intellectual complex, the think tanks, the academic research centers, et cetera, they decide where the weapons are actually used, right? So the entire intellectual um, artifice or the entire intellectual structure of American foreign policy, a lot of it, not all of it, but a lot of it is actually outside of the government at places like the Center for Strategic International Studies, the Brookings Institution, the uh, Council on Foreign Relations, and et cetera. Um, Now, all of these think tanks essentially share what I would call an interventionist worldview. Now, there are degrees of, you know, full-on interventionism or less interventionism, but they basically all believe that the United States should, quote unquote, lead the world, which in my opinion is a euphemism for empire, that the United States should be the prime military, economic, and cultural power. And we should mention, right, that that is also an assumption undergirding the liberal worldview of America. Oh, yeah, policy, yeah. Right? Sorry, this is bipartisan. Yeah. I mean, this is like the bipartisan foreign policy establishment, sometimes referred to as a blob, whatever. But I, it, to be, even beyond bipartisan, I think a lot of sort of international elites would, would agree with this um, sort of transnational group, believe that essentially American military power should protect free trade for, for a lot of sort of international financial capital. But, but I mean, that's, that might be a little bit of a different thing. But anyway, so it's, this is liberal. It's, it's liberal and conservative in sort of the, the way we use those terms colloquially. And what Quincy is trying to do is, is basically provide, you know, an alternative, uh, a third way, if you will. Uh, that is anti-militarist. And, and that's really what they're focusing on right now. Uh, their two major projects are sort of uh, some form of withdrawal from the Middle East and then some sort of ratcheting down of tensions with China so that the United States doesn't get into a so-called new Cold War with China, which has a lot of deleterious consequences, just like the old Cold War with the Soviet Union did um, going forward. Now, as you mentioned, the difficulties in that is that, you know, you need money in this in this society, right? Uh, particularly in terms of, of think tanks and challenging what is by far an established consensus, you need a lot of money to do that. I think there's sort of alternative funding models. I think Matt Brunig's thing, I think uh, I believe it's called the People's Policy Project, is all funded by small donations, and that's great. But I, I at least think it might be difficult to expect for, you know, for people to give $25 a month to like five or six or 10 or 15 or 20 of these, right? So, I mean, the reality is in capitalism, particularly in extremely concentrated capitalism, you do need a lot of money to do things like create an anti-imperialist think tank. And so this anti-imperialist think tank is funded um, partially, not totally, I want to emphasize not totally, by uh, George Soros's Open Society Foundations. And I believe it's Charles Koch, the Charles Koch Institute of the Charles Koch Foundation. I forget exactly what it is. So it's basically a blending of the anti-war libertarian right and sort of the anti-war liberal left. And can I just intervene intervene quickly in case anybody thinks that you're uh, bought off by this uh, Soros Please. money, your last piece for Jacobin last week. <laughs> it's called There's No Such Thing as Good Philanthropy, which is a, uh, a critical review of uh, George Soros' latest book. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, personally, for me, uh, I think it's more important to, to you know, I, I have the the privilege of tenure at an academic institution, so I don't rely. I mean, I guess someone could really try to get me if they want, but uh, one of the freedoms of that is to be able to criticize people who are associated with institutions that, you know, I'm, I'm not paid by yeah. the Quincy Institute. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but maybe, maybe that maybe that's a bad move. But anyway, you know, so I'm critical of philanthropy. I think it's anti-democratic fundamentally. So basically, I think it's important for the left. I mean, I guess I'll just, you know, uh, try to try to give up my opinion on that. There's a difference between utopian thinking and political and strategic thinking, right? Utopian thinking philanthropy is a bad thing because it, it undermines democracy. But the actual practice of the left trying to win power, I think you need to make use of money that, that is available to you. So I think that's how I overcome that that issue. But Mike, challenge. <laughs> Sorry, I, I just had to mention that. But you were you were saying that it's funded by both uh, Soros's Open Society and by the Koch brothers, right? And so then the question becomes: Does that delegitimize the entire project? Right? Like, th- does that delegitimize the entire project? And in my opinion, it doesn't, because in the particular political structures of the United States particularly if you're trying to be an anti-war person, you need to make common cause with people who aren't necessarily in your political coalition. And this is a problem, as you know very well, that socialists have faced throughout the 20th century in a diversity of countries, right? If you don't have, you know, if you're not going to be an autocratic dictatorship, uh, and if you're going to try to, you know, uh, enact socialist change through democracy, that at some point, that's going to come a time for coalition building. So I think, as you mentioned, I think marijuana uh, uh, policy reform, uh, mass incarceration policy reform, and now ideally sort of anti-militarist foreign policy will be one of the areas that those on the left and those on the right will have to cooperate and will hopefully be able to cooperate in order to reach the policy goals uh, that, that we want to see exist. Now, in 20 years, there might not be a need for the Quincy Institute because now, you know, the leftists want to get rid of international capital and, and the libertarian right wants to make the world safe for the dollar. And that, that'd be great. You know, if we get to that point, that'd be great. But I think at the current historical moment, and I think this is Marx's fundamental insight, the current historical moment, you need to take the opportunities that are available to you. Right. I, I guess uh, I agree with with basically... All of that. The only slight pushback, I guess, I would have is that maybe it won't be twenty years when those contradictions come to a head. I mean, they could very well come <laughs> to a head in the very near future. They could come to a head in in twenty twenty sometime, depending on what the uh, developments are in, in in terms of American intervention or 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 in terms of whatever happens in in foreign policy. And you know, if if we have a I don't know, God forbid, of course, but like, a, you know, another major terrorist attack, you know, maybe will will the Koch brothers still want to, uh, you know, be funding an anti-interventionist project uh, or, or if some significant change, you know, uh, you, met, you mentioned China, for example, like what what happens if uh, China's. Uh, position in the in the world uh, in terms of the global capitalist economy is such that you know it starts uh, really eroding uh, American power around the world. Will, will the right still have that kind of commitment to anti-intervention or to or to you know to um, to not using uh, military U.S. military power? to try to uh, protect U.S. market share around the world. They can be fickle friends uh, who uh, they might say right now they don't want to intervene, but these people seem like they can be probably a little fickle. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, of course. I think. I mean, I think that's always a danger, and I think that highlights the structural problem of relying on private funds to fu- to basically support expertise. I mean, in a, in an ideal world, I think we'd have the the public funds given over to these sorts of expert institutions in a way that would be able to actually reflect, you know, the opinions of the American populace. Uh, I mean, I completely agree with that. Uh, but that's that's a really serious structural issue, right? Because then, where do your ideas for foreign policy come from? Right. If, if the if the notion is like expertise is something that is valued, and I, I do think knowledge and learning and, and, and knowing something about countries isn't at least the abstract something that is valuable. Uh, how do we fund that in such a public in, in a public way that you don't become in hoc to basically billionaires? Right. Like the title of the Jacobin piece was there's no such thing as good philanthropy. Right. But this is the world in which we live. And absent that sort of public funding, I, I just don't see um, a path forward on this particular issue. But that I think should inspire socialists like us to rethink again these structures in a, in a way that's directly connected to actually governing and wielding power. Because if Bernie wins, those are the questions that we're going to have to answer. And we'd ideally, if Bernie wins, you know, do what FDR did, which is have crucial structural reforms to the entirety of the American state and governing apparatus, right? That is what we want. And I think in this country, we need to think institutionally. And the left has done that a little bit, but hasn't done it enough in my personal opinion. Right. So that was going to be my last question is given both what you just laid out about the need to democratize American foreign policy and also the concerns with uh, you know institutions or lack thereof when it comes to a non-interventionist foreign policy around the world. Uh, if Bernie wins, what are you know two or three actual tangible policies to accomplish uh, this democratization of, of foreign policy and pushing back against the the imperialist uh, foreign policy establishment that, that should be on the immediate agenda? So that's a great question. And I think the honest answer is there there are no um, so, uh, solutions to those problems yet. If, if I were Bernie, what I would do and what a lot of people do who are interested in institutional reform is immediately get in there and start a task force to sort of reimagine the uh, foreign policy making structure, start a task force to reimagine the executive's role in foreign policy making. And through those sort of very intense deliberations about examining where power is actually located, you'll be able to advocate uh, serious institutional reforms and the development of novel mechanisms that hopefully will be able to make um, um, foreign policy more democratic. Um, The truth is we're not there yet. Um, you know, the left in this country, since Debs was arrested <laughs> by Woodrow Wilson, probably the smartest thing uh, he ever did to destroy <laughs> socialism in this country, the left hasn't really had to confront these questions of actually wielding power. And so the question, uh, the, so we need to start confronting these. And, and I think we're just in the, basically in the learning stage to, to put a fine point on it, that we're not even available uh, or, or ready to offer very specific solutions about what to do going forward. Well, Daniel, I was hoping to end this interview with like, uh, you know, the, the Bessner plan for the immediate future, but you've prevented us from doing that. I guess as, as you come up with these things, we'll hopefully be publishing them in Jacobin once you come up with the answers to these questions. Well, I think I, the Bessner plan right now is to appoint the right people. Uh, I think that that's step one is, is is make sure people like Matt Duss are in there, make sure, you know, the lefties associated with Quincy are in there. And then you could start really building out a program. And then hopefully over the next, you know, 10, 15 years, we'll have more and more cadre able to really, you know, staff the uh, whatever new institution is created, because I'm not sure the NSC is a particularly good one uh, after Bernie, you know, demolishes Trump in the general election. 
So we've been talking about foreign policy from the view of 50,000 feet and the kinds of policies that a president Bernie Sanders or whatever future anti-imperialist socialist president could carry out, uh, as well as the need for anti-imperialist institutions to be built up. But what we haven't talked about as much is uh, the need to rebuild an anti-war movement in this country, which has obviously all but disappeared since President Obama's election in 2008. So what can that look like and how would it interact with these kinds of uh, fledgling institutions that you're talking about and the hopeful democratization of foreign policy that a figure like a President Sanders could achieve? I, I mean, I think that's a really important question. I don't think the elite would be able to properly function or the cadre to you know, put it in Leninist terms would be able to properly function without having a grassroots movement sort of holding its feet to the fire. Because one of the, as everyone knows, one of the things about power is that it, it seduces and it could totally, you know, bring one in. And so I think uh, the, the, an anti-imperialist project absolutely relies on, on basically having a, a very powerful anti-war movement. I think the problem that we have to figure out is how to have an anti-war movement constantly and not just just organize around sort of moments, uh, uh, like extraordinary moments, like um, the Vietnam War or the Iraq War? How do we have basically a constantly pulsing anti-war movement that is uh, dedicated to explicitly challenging the American imperial project? Um, and I think that's something that's very difficult to do. How would we do that? We'd have to have these medium, short, and long-term programs of education. We'd have to incorporate uh, actual veterans of the military into this movement so people are able to see the disastrous effects that it, that it has on people. We'd have to incorporate, again, very crucially, foreign voices into this whole into this whole project. And I think all of that is absolutely crucial so that we have this sort of constant thrum of anti-militarism and anti-imperialism constantly operating um, in the United States. And it is only that when we have that movement that we'll be able to see the type of social transformation that we want, you know, people who are actually in, in the executive branch to, to enact. It, that is not possible without sort of the grassroots support. So if we've got the institutional piece, we have the grassroots movement piece. We're working to democratize foreign policy. We're stopping interventions abroad. All these things sound good, but what are the chances that we will be able to get to hear Bernie say on the campaign trail, we should abolish the CIA? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think very, very low at this point because he's got to win liberal liberal support in, in the election. And they, people love, for some reason, Trump has made liberals love the FBI and the CIA. Uh, so that, that's not, that's not a great position, but I think we should just force him to play the old quote constantly. He should come out to that, you know, like wrestler music (laughs) at the beginning of every rally. You can see it. The CIA, I'm coming for you. (laughs) Yeah. Like the undertaker or someone. Daniel, thank you so much. Oh yeah. Micah, thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. You can listen to other episodes of The Vast Majority as well as our other Jacobin podcasts at Jacobin Radio on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Please do rate and review us as that really makes a difference in people finding us. And we don't ask you for any money on this show, but it's definitely not free. So please subscribe to Jacobin at jacobinmag.com slash subscribe. Buy Jacobin swag at our online store, subscribe to our journal Catalyst, or do whatever else that involves giving us money. Please and thank you.